Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing great. I'm really happy for today's discussion. I have uh, economist Bill Sharp on the podcast to talk about retirement savings, the stock market, and broader trends in the macro economy. I've gotten to know Bill over the last few years working with him on on non-finance related issues. Uh, Bill is really into environmental preservation and particularly the oceans, and so through some of my work, I've gotten to know him in that capacity, and it's been a real pleasure. Uh, but I wanted to talk to him at this juncture when we see you know, the stock market booming, and yet here we are in a deep recession, and when there's a lot of uncertainty, just to get his thoughts on you know, retirement savings and people's pro- the prospects for the stock market in the coming decades. Bill doesn't have a crystal ball, but he's got a lot of wisdom, and he's really responsible for a lot of the innovation in finance and financial thinking over the last few decades. So I thought he was the perfect person to have on the podcast. So without further ado, I bring you Bill Sharp. Okay, so I'm here with Bill Sharp. Bill, good to see you. It's good to be here, at least uh, virtually. Absolutely. So we're going to talk all things kind of stock market finance here today. And uh, I want to start with kind of a general question. As you know, many people are having a hard time right now reconciling the fact that the economy is in a deep recession, and yet the stock market is doing quite well. I mean, we're hearing these things. I think it was Monday, Jeff Bezos made $13 billion in one day because Amazon went up like 7%. I think Elon Musk has made $50 billion in the last couple months. And, you know, and it makes sense for some of these companies, Amazon in particular, Zoom, which we're using now because they're getting a lot more business in the, in the pandemic. But what do you think explains the broader increases in the market at this juncture? I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a disconnect between the stock market and the kind of, quote, regular mainstream economy that, than today. Um, well, I'm, I'm tempted to say what Lord Cain said, animal spirits, but <clears throat> you know, I don't think that. Um, I guess one thing that's important is to understand that the stock market is not egalitarian not every stock is equally important. And uh, anticipating that you might well ask that because almost everybody that I know does. I I checked, um, this is as of the end of June, um, and this is the holding from the holdings of an index fund, the Vanguard index fund that uh, represents the stock markets worldwide, this is. And, um, and I looked at the top 10 holdings in terms of market value and the indices that we look at, the S&P 500 and whatever, uh, not Dow Jones, but all the real indices are value weighted. So stocks that have more value outstanding, you know, play a bigger role. So let me just read you because I, I think this is instructive. This is in order. Number one is the most valuable of of these, I think there are 8,682 stocks in this index. The most valuable is Microsoft. 
followed by Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Facebook, Alibaba Group Holdings, and I looked that up, which is e-commerce, retail, internet, and technology, China. Johnson & Johnson, there's your outlier. Tencent Holdings, also Chinese holding company, internet, entertainment, artificial intelligence and technology. Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's firm, which if the press can be believed, is now about 50% Apple stock. And then the final, the outlier, number 10 is Visa. But uh, I don't know about you, but I, we've been charging a fair amount to either Visa or MasterCard uh, as we shop from home. Uh, and those 10 uh, at the end of June were almost 14% of the total value of the worldwide stock markets. So, so I think when we see the market going up, we need, or down for that matter, we need to think in large part, not exclusively, of, of this industry broadly construed. And I don't know about your listeners, but, but most people I know have been spending a lot more time and probably a lot more money using uh, firms of that sort. So that's part of it. Uh, the, there's another aspect that's a little bit uh, obscure, and I, I'm not sure how important this is, <clears throat> but uh, if you look at various indicators, and I'll mention one, um, people are paying more for money in the future um, for various reasons one can imagine, because what are you going to do with it now? Uh, etc. You can't take the vacations that we were talking about earlier, you and I. Um, but an indicator where you can get a pretty clear view of that is, uh, it's pretty obscure, but it's what people pay for treasury securities that will pay you money adjusted for inflation. So they're, they're the only truly riskless security, at least for somebody who buys goods and services in the US. And the prices of those have gone up substantially. Uh, it is now true, and has been now for some while, that the only sure thing you can get in terms of money in the future, uh, you give the treasury or you somebody else a basket of groceries in return for the guarantee that in the future you will get less than a basket of groceries. Um, the real rate of interest is negative, which is pretty remarkable. And so, so that would lead you, and you look at bond prices as well, they've been going up. It's an indicator that people are paying more for money in the future. Um, and so that's, I think, part of, a part of this story. Well, let, let's let's dig in a little deeper this because I think that makes a lot of sense, especially your your first part about it's pretty tech weighted, and, and clearly the tech companies are having a boom because, like you said, we're all on our computers. It totally makes sense that Netflix is doing great right now, and Zoom, of course, and Amazon. But you know, in the simplest terms, right? Stock prices are the net present value of future profits, and even you know most companies' future profits are going to likely be negative. And in fact, a lot of companies are, are declaring bankruptcy. And then we see, you know, really major industries 
you know, and fossil fuels and travel companies and kind of heavy infrastructure and, and uh, you know, kind of agricultural production, these kind of goods. And we're still, I know you mentioned that kind of Dow Jones isn't like a real index because it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not the, it's not the, the, the technologies of the future for sure, but even the Dow is not doing that bad. And it just seems like we're, we're entering, you know, we have what, 30 million unemployed and even the indices that represent the kind of the, the bread and butter, kind of brick and mortar, fossil fuel dependent and really not heavy tech firms seem to be doing reasonably well. Any, any thoughts on why they've, they haven't taken such a big hit? Well, I mean, you know, and again, this is, understand, this is a lot of rationalization after the fact. Hmm. Um, you know, did I predict it would come back instant, almost instantly? Of course I did. Um, but uh, I think if you think about the price of, of a stock, if it's a solid company and it's going to be around, then this is the present value of future earnings out to the infinite future. And obviously, you know, something 100 years from now is not weighted as heavily as something next year. But that said, uh, if in fact people believe or the average investor believes that things will come back in a year or two years, that's one or two out of a lot. Uh, and yes, there's discounting. Um, so that I think is part of it. Another part of it is you've got to remember who, you know, who holds most of the securities and it's not average working people. Uh, they're held disproportionately by the rich, let's say. And some of this is perhaps not as, as you know, impacted, full impactful for the rich. So those are those are rationalizations. Right. Uh, I hope they're rationales, but but uh, those are at least some things to think about trying to understand what's happened. Yeah, yeah. And again, I'm not uh, expecting you to have a crystal ball here. So those those seem no, I, I have no idea what's going on. Those certainly are better than uh, than better than what than what I had to offer. Um, you know, maybe just one quick thing you mentioned here, you know, about how most stocks are owned by the wealthy. And it's really a barometer of kind of economic inequality in some sense. You know, we, we, we celebrate stock markets going up. But if you go dig, dig deeper a little, that means economic inequality is getting worse almost by definition. It's not that there aren't some poor and middle income people who, who benefit, but it's absolutely a booming stock market means growing inequality. And, and, and at this moment, when you have so many out of work and then again, the billionaires just, you know, making huge windfalls, any sense of, you know, whether you think, you know, higher tax rates on the wealthy or even wealth taxes or things like that might be come back into vogue pretty quickly, given that we're really seeing this gulf widening? Well, I, you know, I, I thought you were going down the path of, do I think that's a good thing or a bad thing? And I was <laughs> going to do the lecture, the lecture from my Econ 1, or that was a, I guess it was a PhD course uh, instructor, that economics, as you well know, Jason, is at least traditionally about um, efficiency and, al al you know, efficient allocation of resources. But who gets the resources to begin with is a value judgment, and that's for 
the social scientists uh, other than economists, but um, you know, I, you know, frame your question again. I, I diverted myself. Well, no, I just think, you know, you know, there's been a lot of talk, so let's maybe make it specific. There's a lot of talk about wealth taxes, right? This is a little new on yes, the scene yeah. because, you know, Warren had one, Bernie had one. Do you think the case for a wealth tax is increasing in the current moment? Well, again, I, you know, that has to do with one's values or hopefully the values of the society writ large. Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's not within the purview of the efficient allocation of resources, given allocation of wealth is, as you well know, the mantra. Um, you know, do I personally think, uh, you know, let me, let me not give my, my, my views as to allocation of, of wealth because it's not my, my professional specialty. Um, but will there be more, you know, interest in it more of a demand for it, more political will for it. Um, I'm not sure. I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, it's, I have, I have predicted uh, probably one percent of what's happened in the last several years politically. Um, so, so I'm, I'm, I have no expertise in that area. That's fair. That's fair. Well, that sadly. I've predicted a lot of the things that have gone on in the last few years, and I'm very upset that I have been right. I, I wish I had been wrong, but we can, that's another conversation. <laughs> um, so we'll stick with the, the finance discussion. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I know a number of people who have bought individual stocks um, and have done quite well. I know a ton of people who bought Netflix, Tesla, Amazon, Apple, you know, over the last couple decades at, at prices that were re reasonably low and they've made windfall profits, right? These stocks have increased 10, 30, 50 X. So people who put in 10, 20 grand, you know, 10 years later have a quarter million, a half million dollars. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people who see that, they see those windfalls and they wanna try to replicate it. And I, I just, you know, I, I'm curious, do you think it's true that this is still a bad bet? That, you know, that even though some people will win those, those bets and strike it rich, that you know, you really should stay away from any kind of individual company bets on um, future stock prices. Yeah, my 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 one word answer to that is yes. I think that that's a bad idea, and you know, it's important to always remember. And again, I'm not telling you anything you don't know. <clears throat> that uh, it's very rare to be at a party or a coffee group or whatever it may be and have somebody tell you about how they put a lot of money in a stock and they lost their shirt. <laughs> it's just, just, you know, so we all hear that, uh, but it's wildly biased information. We hear the people who got lucky when they got lucky. I have a friend who's, who ranges, who can sometimes be insufferable because and periodically, he tells you how he put all his money in Apple stock and made out like a bandit. But there are periods when he doesn't talk about his investments, and you can pretty well tell, oh, Apple stock did, did poorly that quarter. Um, but no, I mean, it's just, it, it makes no sense whatsoever. 
um, diversification is kind of a freebie. You reduce risk and you don't have to reduce expected return. Uh, it's just a, it's just the totally rational thing to do. Right, right. Yeah, well, certainly in this area with, you know, with we're on the, you know, the, the front lawn of Silicon Valley, that is largely being spoken into the wilderness because it seems like most people are speculating wildly on individual bets willy-nilly here. Um, and again, and you are not going to hear from the ones that, that lose. Yeah. Right. There's, that's, that's, I think that's a very important point, right? We have a big selection bias to the winners, not to the losers, right? People aren't lamenting about how much money they lost. That doesn't make for good party conversation. Um, well, maybe taking back at even at the indices, the indices and the kind of the broader market. I remember speaking with you last year when the market was near record highs. You know, I think it was the end of 2019. And we talked about how, you know, how these they seem pretty highly valued and that this was likely to mean that future returns were going to be lower over the coming decade. Right. So that people putting money away for retirement, you know, at the end of 2019 shouldn't be expecting banner returns, you know, over that next decade, given that how it's almost even overvalued the stock market was. Um, you know, how do you think about that now? You know, given given the moment now, people who are building for retirement, but buying into the stock market now, how should they be thinking about the future returns in the next, you know, couple of decades? Well, again, I'll, I'll go back to my, my treasury inflation protected security story where you know you can that's that's the only place you can really see for sure what will I get in terms of purchasing power in the future by sacrificing purchasing power today which is really what matters now I'm not saying everybody should invest in those securities um, it's perfectly sensible to take some risk at least diversified portfolio risk but, but that's an area where you can see, and at the moment, from a societal standpoint, and this has been going on for some while, uh, the, quote, real return on that kind of investment has been falling. Um, and that's presumably because more people want real income in the future. Um, we're moving to a higher percentage of retirees and near retirees. Population is aging. Uh, we're having fewer children. So, so I think you're seeing a societal shift, not just here, but in a great many countries. And quite frankly, the, the expected return in the future is not as good, but at least until the pandemic, you know, people with money, at least, you know, I mean, some money, not a lot of money necessarily, uh, were expecting to live longer and longer and longer, and therefore needed to save more, invest more. And not surprisingly, that drove prices up and expected returns down. And so do you think then, so someone, you know, like my students who are kind of entering the workforce now, they're in their mid to late 20s, and you know, probably have some student loans or something, but, you know, might start putting a few percentage in their 401ks that they're going to have to plan on either working longer or saving a higher percentage of their, uh, their wages in order to have a, a comfortable retirement. Would that, you say that would be the kind of the conclusion we draw? Yes. And yeah, 
but with one caveat. That's what I would say before the pandemic. Right. And, and, you know, we have yet to see how that's going to affect demographics, mortality, longevity, all those things. Right, right. Fair enough. So maybe coming back to the, you know, the kind of individual stocks we have, we have, you know, you're pretty emphatic that that's, you know, that's a, that's a bad bet. And that even, you know, again, even if some people strike it rich, it's just not, not a good way to go. But what about taking a step back and saying, what about sectors? So I know a lot of people and I'll even throw myself in this basket. I, I try to follow your advice, but something draws me a little to the dark side. And I'm, I'm weighted in like technology and AI and robotics, just, you know, a little bit more than the broader index just because I'm thinking those are the fields that are going to be where the big innovation and the big returns and productivity is going to be coming from. So do you think there's any sense in weighting a portfolio to, more, to those more tech heavy industries or is, is that too a sort of you know, a type of betting that you think is, is, is ill-conceived? Well, you have to ask yourself, um, I mean, are those, do those sectors have rosy futures in terms of Profits, sales, etc. You know, almost certainly, I would say yes. But the question is, you know, are you the, one of the few who knows that? I mean, the price you're going to pay when you buy one of those stocks is going to be the price that it took to get somebody to sell you one of those stocks. And you know, and if that person also was well informed about the future, et cetera, he or she is not going to sell it to you at a price that isn't, quote, that doesn't reflect in some way those rosy future industry profits. So, so you know, it's, this is, it's not, you know, one way to think about this is when you buy a stock, you're not, Yes, you are in some sense investing in the industry, but of course the industry's already gotten the money for when they issued that stock. In some sense, you're you're buying it from somebody else who either needs the money and is selling, or thinks that you're paying too much for it and is selling. And so, and then there's, there's something that I, you know, it's a, I did a paper years ago called the arithmetic of investment management. But it's always, in, in, in the basic idea is you got to think about the whole. If you're buying, somebody is selling. Why is that person selling? Um, you know, are they dumber than you are? Okay, but, you know, they could have sold to somebody who's probably as smart as you are. And so prices get determined by a sort of a balance between sellers and buyers and buyers and buyers and sellers and sellers. Um, and, you know, is the price quote, the right price? Of course not. But is it a reasonably good S expectation of the range of things that could happen to that company or sector? Probably so. And, you know, unless you are considerably smarter than the other people in those markets, the best bet is the free bet diversify, you reduce risk, and you don't necessarily reduce return. So am I correct to assume that kind of underlying your thinking here is some version, it seems fairly strong of kind of efficient market hypothesis that 
that the information in the system here has been pretty evenly distributed or at least, you know, it's distributed enough that, you, you know, nobody has inside information or any better information than the, the people on the other end of the, the, the exchange? Um, that's probably stronger than, than, than I, would, I would put it. It's just that, you know, especially for individual investors, your best assumption is that, you know, the, a reasonable prediction of the future is embedded in the prices. And therefore, there's, there's not an obvious error out there. Oh my gosh, Apple stock, it, those dumb investors, they haven't realized what a great company it is. Uh, so I'm gonna load up on it. Um, and the diversification is, I mean, that's for sure diversifying, not putting all your eggs in one basket, you're better off. Um, if you have special information and you really believe it's not reflected in the price and you really believe the people who are going to sell that to you are, are dumb, um, more power to you. Hmm. But this, this arithmetic of active management, it has to do with, you know, active managers, either institutional or individual, are people who don't diversify and across the whole marketplace. Um, and if you look at the total return in any given period of people who buy everything in the market in market proportions, market index funds, it's X. And if you look at the total return of all the other people, it's also X because where X is the total market, you know, if we passive investors get the market before costs, the average dollar in the rest of the market, the active managers get the same return. After costs, um, if it's an institutional manager, they're going to charge you more for picking stocks. Um, if it's you, you're going to pay a price in unneeded risk for picking stocks. So there's a very, very strong argument that just by a market cap weighted index fund, as broad as you can get it, sit on it. And, uh, and don't look back. <laughs> but I mean, you know, but just let me say, societally, we need people like you who are, who are doing your research and saying, whoa, this company I think is underpriced, I'll buy it, thereby driving the price up to where it ought to be. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, let me be clear. I have never bought an individual stock ever. I know you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I have bought, you know, again, I, I'm like, I'm in between the Bill Sharp recommendation and the active investor. I'm a little, I'm not weighted equally in index funds. I am a little weighted on the, the tech, AI, robotics, a little, you know, biotech, that kind of stuff. All the, all the industries that I thought, now you're absolutely right. Like when I bought them, why would someone have been giving me a discount, right? That's the, that's the key. And they probably weren't, but maybe I'm just more bullish on these sectors, yeah. you know, than, and, and again, and I might, I absolutely might lose my shirt on them, but you know, uh, so far it's certainly been, you know, okay. And again, they're highly diversified. It's hundreds of companies. And so it's not, a, I don't feel too at risk of big swings, you know? Um, but, uh, but all right, well, well, thanks for that. Let's uh, move on to some kind of general questions here. So what, what zombie misconceptions? These are, these are bad ideas that never die, no matter how untrue they are. 
about stocks and retirement funds, are you still su- still surprised to see rooted in quote conventional wisdom? Oh, what one? Oh, I thought you were going to give me some to comment on. Oh, oh. Um, yeah, I just mean you know what generic? What do you just? What do you look at and go? I can't believe people still peddle that nonsense. You know, it's been thirty years and people still keep believing these myths. Well, you know, I don't pay much attention to them, so I'm not very current. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Right, right, right. You're you're above it. <laughs> well, or or beyond it. I don't, or or away from it. I, you know, whatever you want to say. Right on. And my, you know, most of my friends, um, you know, know know my my views, so they don't really give me a lot of of happy stories about the bets they made that actually turned out well. <laughs> Right on. All right. Well, then let me let me rephrase it then and just say if you could wave a magic wand and change people's behavior to make them better prepared for retirement, what would you make them do? Um, first, I would say in almost every case, save more. Um, and second, diversify. And third, you know, be very, very aware of costs. Um, and uh, and then for most people, work longer than than you really have, would have wished to. Right. Yeah. It is a it is a sad reality, though, that and all that. And then Social Security retirement age is going up, so we're going to get less from that. <laughs> and then, of course, we haven't even talked about the fact that I think it's in about fifteen years that the trust fund runs out of money, and we're going to have to rejigger Social Security, or it's going to only pay about seventy five percent of expected benefits or pledged benefits currently. That's uh, true. I mean, and, you know, I, I think, I mean, the trust fund is de minimis now. Right. I mean, it, it's uh, a right. tiny right. percentage, but, right, right. but the long-term economics of Social Security is is way out of whack. Yeah. And, um, and, and my personal societal view is that that it would be a disaster if we were to cut social security benefits for at least the bottom half of, of recipients. Um, that's a, that's a value judgment. <laughs> yeah. Not, not within my professional, you know, expertise. Sorry, but we're, 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 we, you're human too. And you can, uh, you, you can tell us what you have, believe. <laughs> as long as I identify what is, what is <laughs> as a human. <laughs> um, all right. Well, what about what do you think about some of these automatic enrollment options that many institutions use to get people to contribute to their 401ks or 503bs? You know, this is based on the kind of status quo bias research that when the default option is you're not enrolled and you have to, you know, you have to call in the HR department. Most people don't do it. So a lot of institutions are, are doing that. It's all you're automatically enrolled. And then there, there's some new programs, too, where as you get raises, they increase your contributions, you know? So what do you, what's your general feeling about these kind of automatic kind of behavioral nudges as a, as a way to get people to save? Yeah, I, I think they're, they're, they're remarkable. You know, Dick Taylor, Slomo Bernardsi, you know, have been first started, started arguing for this particular kind of nudge. And, and that's, I think, Dick's term. From, um, um, and yeah, I, I mean, it's, it, it's made a huge difference. And uh, inertia is a, a remarkable force. <laughs> if you just mm-hmm. if it just happens and you have to take an action not to save more, uh, so yes, I think I think they've, they've been wonderful and, and and 
And I think it's very hard to argue that it's Big Brother. You know, Big Brother is if your employer and your Big Brother isn't saying you have to do it. It just says, by the way, you know, if you don't tell us otherwise, you're going to be saving more as you get more income. Right. And, and, and it's in the vast majority of cases, very, very sensible. I, I might say this, there's, there's, there's a big underlying problem uh, in the whole idea of retirement savings, retirement spending, social security. And that is a terrible discrepancy on disparity in mortality rates. People in the middle class and above just live longer than people in lower income, you know, ranges and more disadvantaged for various reasons. So, so that, that, that's, that's horrible. I mean, the most horrible part is the fact that that is true. Um, and so first thing you do is try to figure out a way to, to, to erase that disparity in the right way. And, uh, second thing you do is is worry about forcing or even encouraging people whose lifespans are not going to be that long to save more than they need for their particular lifespans yeah you know i hadn't thought about it that way you're right you know all this talk that we've had up to this moment is about assuming people are going to live at the kind of whatever the average age of low 80s or whatever which is you know approximately 15 plus years of retirement like you're pointing out, there's demographics that, you know, are, are living, you know, quite less than that. And so anything that's taking more money out of their present consumption for retirement, they're never going to actually enjoy is almost perverse, but it's almost perverse to just assume they're going to die early too, right? So it's kind that's of- absolutely up. right. Well, that's yeah. why you, yeah. you need to do do something that's that's more like, like an annuity, which Social Security is. Right. Um, but- but it's at least something that it's important to keep in mind. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And anything you can do to rectify that yeah. terrible mortality and lower income. Yeah. It's obviously the most important thing to worry about. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, well, I have maybe two last questions here, kind of going back to some macro here. It seems that a big part of the kind of high value in equities over the last decade or two has been really these historically low interest rates. And, you know, whereas people can't make as much money, you know, um, you know, holding cash and holding, you know, holding savings, there's just more of an incentive to go and try to, you know, get some returns out in the equities market. And that has increased the demand and, and therefore pushed up the price. It's funny because, you know, many conservative economists are, or quote economists have been saying, you know, this huge inflation is just around the corner for, you know, 10, 15 years and actually been, you know, telling the Fed to raise interest rates because inflation's coming. And of course, it's never come. And in fact, we just hit the lowest 30-year mortgage rate in history just last week. So this, really? era, yeah, yeah, it was under 3%, the average 30-year mortgage wow. under 3%. Um, and so it was, it, was a, it was the lowest since they've been recording um, the 30-year mortgage. And, and so, you know, so this there's clearly no end in sight to these low interest rates. But do you see any macroeconomic factors that could change this trajectory and this kind of begin to unwind this era of easy money? Um, again, I, you know, it's very hard for, it's, it's impossible for me 
very hard for monetary economists and macroeconomists, I believe, as, as well, to really fully untangle how much of this is demographics. Lots of people who are going to at least hope to live a long time and therefore saving more and driving down interest rates, etc., um, from monetary effects and macro effects, if you will. So uh, I think this may well be, you know, in, in, in considerable part, I won't say large part, due to demographics, increased longevity, et cetera, fewer babies, you know, the whole nine yards. Um, and to, if, it's, if it's that funda that fundamental part of it, it's not at all clear to me that you can you can affect it, at least in, in large part in the real economy um, through monetary or macro policy. Right, right. No, that makes sense. And I do think the demographics, again, are more in that direction, right? I mean, people are having less kids even more now because of the, the economic collapse. And, uh, and then we have aging populations all over the world. It's not just the U.S., right? So those demographic trends are, are certainly with us, it seems, for the foreseeable future. Um, so maybe just some last thoughts. Again, no, you're, you're, you're not an you're not, uh, expert on all things macro, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on the, the Fed's performance you know, in the last decade since the Great Recession and maybe the Security Exchange Commission. These are kind of wonky topics, but you know, any insights on, on things they're doing well or could be improved for you know, to, that might help uh, people's, you know, you know, retirement prospects or, you know, more stability in the system? Well, and I'll just, again, the, the broader question, I, it's, I'll take a pass, but um, at least some things uh, fairly recently, I think, are, are, are helpful. Uh, <clears throat> we're beginning to see in retirement, pre-retirement programs, 401k plans, 403b, what have you, uh, we're beginning to see the advent of at least an option to buy an annuity. Uh, in some sense, an annuity, an annuity is, for those, just to make it really simple, you give a, an insurance company some money and they say, we'll give you X dollars every year until you die. And there are all kinds of variations on the theme. We'll give you X till you die. And if your spouse is alive, we'll give him or her one half X or what have you. But, but basically, you know, there's market risk, there's economic risk, and there's longevity risk. And the bad news economically is you're going to live a long time. Um, it's very good news in all other respects, uh, usually. <laughs> but, uh, so longevity risk is something that you can and do pool, just like you can and do pool security risk by diversifying. And so you can pool your longevity risk with a hundred other people. And that way your money will last longer. And so annuities are sort of the classic you give money to the insurance company, they promise to pay you a certain amount every month till you die. Um, and uh, 
So one of the things we're seeing is the ability of somebody while working to buy little pieces of an annuity. Now you could just put it in the stock market when you retire, take your 401k and buy an annuity with that. But there was something to be said and, and there's some new products coming out um, that allow you to buy an option to buy an annuity, you know, where the terms are fixed in advance, but when you retire, you don't have to do it. So there's some interesting things going on. And um, in the financial industry, we've had this dichotomy. There have been insurance annuity salespeople, you know, who work for or work with insurance companies, and there have been investment advisors. And, you know, if you're retired and you've got your 401k and your savings and you want help, and it depends on which office you go to as to how your money gets invested. Um, and I think what we're beginning to see is uh, some merging of the two where you can get help either pre-retirement or post-retirement with really thinking through the trade-offs between an annuity. Because once you buy an annuity, that's it, you're locked in. Otherwise it wouldn't work. You can't say, oh, I just got sick. I think I'll take my money out. Thank you. <laughs> um, so uh, <clears throat> so we're beginning to see some, some merging of those. So hopefully people can make rational decisions as to what kind of mix they want in retirement between annuitization and, and investment. Um, and obviously there are all kinds of issues your kids would rather you invested than buying an annuity because if you put all your money in an annuity, there's nothing left. Um, and so, so there are all kinds of, of thorny problems, but we're beginning to see, and we're beginning to see academically, as you know, some of those issues, which is, which is a good thing. Great, great. Well, Bill, we hope you live a long time. I will, uh, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people will get a lot of information out of, uh, out of this discussion. Thanks for having me. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bill. Uh, for the antidote today, I'm just going to keep it pretty simple here, but I'm just going to say that in addition to following Bill's wisdom here of how to build, you know, retirement savings and, uh, you know, some security in your golden years, I just recently experienced an episode with a close family member uh, where the panic that was setting in when the market was crashing almost led this family to member to make some really grave errors. And so the recommendation here is, again, when you make a retirement plan or a savings plan, stick with it. Do not check stocks on a daily basis and do not panic. So here's the, the anecdote that I will use. So when the coronavirus started getting really serious there in March, the U.S. stock market plunged about 30 to 40 percent, depending on what indices you were following. And my close family member was freaking out and almost sold their entire uh, savings. Now, this wouldn't have bankrupted them or put them in, you know, in the, the in, in the line for food stamps or anything. Um, but it would have been a huge hit because, as we've seen, the stock market not only came back from that 30 or 40 percent, but has actually increased 10 or 20 percent. So this family member would have potentially lost up, you know, up to 50% of their life savings from making that panic move. 
And luckily, uh, they did not. I convinced them to not do that. I, I, I talked to Bill, and Bill sent me an email. And since Bill is a lot smarter than me on finance, I think the combination of me talking them down and then an email from Bill saying that that was a very unwise thing to do uh, talked some sense into them, and they did not sell most of their holdings, and uh, crisis was averted. So again, get a plan, stick to it, do those automatic um, you know, contributions from your paycheck, and just forget about it, right? Retirement for most of us is many, many decades in the future. There's going to be total chaos and crisis every few years because that's what humans do. But if you just stick with your plan, you can, uh, you can have some retirement security. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Rate it. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, uh, Stitcher, and Spotify. And with that, I hope you have a great rest of the week. Take care.